What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Game Dev Unchained, the number one game development podcast about game development and the lifestyle thereof. I am your host, Brandon Pham, and with me, a special guest, Tony Bevilacqua. Got it. Good job. Yeah, you nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this is the part of the podcast, Tony, that uh, I asked our guest, which is yourself, about yourself. You know, a little introduction of where you've been, where you're at, where you're heading to our listeners and viewers out there. Yeah, sounds good. So I'm Tony Bethlacqua. I'm the founder and CEO of Cognitive 3D. Uh, We focus on uh, analytics for virtual, augmented, and and mixed reality. Quick background on myself. Um, I've been in the VR space uh, specifically since 2015. And uh, we took our first product in the market 2016. Uh, prior to that, uh, ran a another company as chief product focused on a mobile analytics uh, product, uh, definitely in the game space. Um, through that experience of building that product and and that capability, I had some uh, opportunity to um, you know see what was going on in the VR space. So went out to GDC in 2014, 2015, started seeing some like really interesting things going on in the immersive technology space. And uh, tried some demos and things, and I was like, you know what, you know, I'm I'm trying to build kind of a repeating product in the in the mobile category right now. You know, I could probably do something a little bit more innovative in the immersive technology space. And really, I kind of approached it by you know thinking about you know what is it that we need to do that it, you know what what is the opportunity to to measure and, and how is that different uh, than the mobile category? And we really kind of opened the company with the thesis of you know what if we could use the headset as a vehicle for data collection, and that's really kind of where you know Cognitive 3D started, and we started taking our uh, our product into market. Awesome. What what are the different use cases that people are using data collection? Uh, I'm 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 guessing like there's different industries that you're serving, or at least from your clientele. Uh, can you provide some examples of how they're using this data or providing data or? Yeah, for sure. I mean, honestly, back in 2016, I thought the rocket ship was taking off. And so that was a little bit of a, 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 you know, kind of a awakening, not just for me, but for the entire industry, that there was significant technical challenges that kind of needed to be worked out uh, for us to be able to, um, you know, kind of grow as an industry and build something that consumers actually are interested in buying. So in the early days, I was thinking games entertainment, you know, that's really where, you know, where my passion is and uh, where we see, you know, the most overall fit, you know, providing some insight for developers on how to build better content. And the reality was is that that industry wasn't ready. I mean, there was definitely some early enthusiasts and some good technology that um, those prosumers could definitely use, but reality was it wasn't a scaling market. And so we started to look at you know dashboard use and one of the things we saw is that there was a kind of a, a smattering of you know kind of enterprises that had signed up for our gaming product so we were kind of um surprised by that you know it wasn't something that we expected on day one and so we started to dig in a little bit and realized that you know there was a whole enterprise space that had money they could you know spend on exploring this technology and so we really realized that we had some fit in a few primary categories and the first one actually in the beginning was really consumer research right so they kind of bought into our whole ideology around you know leveraging the this technology as a vehicle for data collection and so that came to fruition through things like you know a retail uh you know cpg so that's consumer packaged goods so like testing you know product placement in stores and store design uh moved into aec so architecture and engineering construction so you know folks were building digital twins you know in unity and, and unreal and they wanted to be able to measure how you know uh, folks interacted with those spaces like what drew their attention how did they wayfind how did uh, signage and other types of inputs, uh, you know, potentially um, influence their behavior as well? And uh, and then finally, um, you know, product design. So you're thinking like vehicles and things that aren't built yet, right? Like how do we collect and innovate on our design process, um, it, you know, in, in such a way that r- reduces you know, cost uh, of of prototypes of vehicles is a good example of that. You know, how do we step back from clay models and, you know, be able to iterate off the 3D asset pipeline and and test people uh, in headset around the same type of, you know, kind of ergonomics and and other types of insights like, you know, in in vehicle design. 
And I think that that's, you know, really where our business started uh, from a commercial perspective. And then over the last several years, training and simulation has been where things have really taken off. And so that's usually hard skills as well as soft skills training, uh, you know, collecting uh, behavioral data on effectively human performance. So how people are interacting with the space and uh, maybe evaluating things that are a little bit more intricate than, you know, pass fail. Right. Like what, you know, did they demonstrate good situational awareness? Did they, you know, follow the tasks in the right order and, and uh, you know, complete the, um, the the modules the way that they were supposed to? Yeah. Coming from a, a game background and, and slightly touching the enterprise sector of things. I mean, there's definitely a big shift, right? Not just in the VR space, but in game development. You know, we're seeing the Mandalorian using these virtual sets, you know, to kind of basically bring in post-production during production uh, and have like the spherical screen that actors can play in, right? Um, but VR is definitely a, a, a more immersive tech to kind of embrace, you know, these t different, like you said, sim simulations um, that, that kind of look, lays down the groundwork of what the matrix is right i mean when you think of the matrix you think of these training models these possibilities to kind of sit in your seat but bring the world to you in a more interactive way uh it has the dna of you know the game industry but other industries are are, are taking notice and i feel like a lot of times they don't commercialize too much of that like at least market it right to the regular people I would love to kind of learn more about like what are you seeing in the space that is growing kind of the VR market in a very weirdly secretive way, right? That is not like mass consumption uh, just yet, right? Um, and on what kind of like interesting examples that you're seeing that like, hey, this can actually change basically everything, right? A lot of times as a gamer, I'm looking at meta and what they're doing. And it's like very enterprise focused, right? In, in mm -hmm. terms of their demos and kind of gaming is kind of like 10% of the the yearly thing. There's a reason for it. And I would love to kind of hear your insight of like, hey, this is what we're seeing in that space. This is why it's kind of bigger than just the gaming market. And hence. Yeah, for sure. You know, the Mandalorian is kind of a good example. I, you know, I don't think that that was a anticipated use case when, you know, Vive built that technology and then they built the Vive trackers as well to kind of go on top of that. And then you started to see this opportunity where you could attach these, you know, Vive trackers for spatial tracking to a camera and get proper parallax in, you know, full motion sets. And I think that, you know, the usage of the technology is something that the market finds equilibrium in. So, you know, it, it's, we all have ideas about how this stuff is ultimately going to get consumed. And same with, you know, kind of my original go-to-market, you know, I thought gaming and entertainment is, you know, where we're going to be on, on day one and that, you know, who would want to use this incredible technology. And the reality was, is that there was more work to be done. And, you know, the enterprise space, regardless if, you know, there was challenges around, you know, uh, technology and input and, you know, other types of things, they could still find fit and value in, in enterprise. And I think that that's kind of what we've seen uh, with Meta and, and all the other, you know, HMD providers as well, is that they were able to get early traction to drive the rest of the industry. Because, you know, the reality is, is that there's just huge amounts of research and R&D to be done. And, you know, there's a lot of folks that are critical about the amount of money that gets poured, you know, into this space, specifically by Meta is probably the number one in terms of, um, you know, criticality around how much they're spending on reality labs. Um, but these are tough problems. These are, you know, we're, you know, improving optics. We're talking about rendering. We're reducing, you know, other types of, uh, you know, kind of technology problems to increase comfort, ergonomics, and the acceptability of this technology for the broader market. And so I think, you know, through that entire process, you know, the enterprise side has uh, embraced the technology and will continue. But I don't think that this is much different than, uh, you know, other technology and, and how it's been adopted in the past. And I think the personal computer is, a, you know, kind of a good example. Computers came into business, you know, they kind of transformed the industry in terms of how work got done uh, in the office. And, you know, that, uh, that personal computer made its way into the home and became part of everyday life. 
same thing with the smartphones, right? It really started off in the early days with, you know, um, you know, smartphones, uh, mobile phones, um, you know, BlackBerry. And, you know, this quickly started to evolve and, and make its way into our everyday life. And so I think that industry, you know, has a really important role to play here as early adopters of technology that can, you know, take on this technology and create a early demand enough that, you know, industry can invest. And ultimately, we get to a place where we have a acceptable consumer device that is um, widely adoptable. So this kind of leads into perfectly, you know, about the app vision pro, right? I mean, we know kind of yeah. like in terms of how they name their, their products pro, it's usually for developers and they're very niche and they, they're growing from that. Right. Um, even Apple understands that it's going to take some growth for mass consumption. What is the main thing that you're seeing that is preventing completely mass consumption? Um, well, I mean, in that particular device, it's definitely going to be cost, right? If we think about the device that they've created, I mean, honestly, I'm excited. They created a high bar, right? Yeah. If we think about what it, what the opportunity is here, um, if they had come to uh, the market with a product that was maybe halfway down the road uh, in terms of like where Meta and some of the other players would, I would be a little bit more concerned. Um, but the reality is, is that they created a very high bar for all the rest of the OEMs to now meet if they want to play in this particular space. They created, obviously, a professional product. And the pro in the name actually makes me excited and that maybe there'll be a non-pro version, something cheaper, something more mass market. But they came to the table with what they felt was their MVP, right? Their minimal viable product. And so, you know, at that particular level, now it's a matter of like, can we reduce costs? Can we make it smaller? Can we make it lighter? Can we make it more battery efficient? Um, you know, I think that those are, you know, kind of the professional, you know, you know, the, the, the tough problems that will be worked on over the next couple of years. And so I, you know, I, overall, I'm, I'm really excited about it. And you're, you're right. Like the, the prosumers are going to go after this product and, and use it. Uh, but it's also going to seed the developer ecosystem, uh, and their interest in creating things and seeing what the art of the possible is uh, with this new type of device from from a major manufacturer. Uh, the way we interact with these mounted displays um, have kind of evolved, right? Finally, with mm -hmm. Apple Vision, I think for the longest mm -hmm. time, it, it kind of went to the gamey side, mostly with the controllers in each hand, kind of like the nunchucks that Nintendo doesn't get enough credit for. But I mean, they basically cough in the nunchucks. Yeah. And, Apple Vision's like, let's clean this up a bit, right? The same way they did with the smartphone, big screen, no buttons, mostly gestural for the Apple Vision. What kind of change and, you know, what what, what do you think that they're doing with that, that that's going to influence a lot of this mass consumption move? Is it like a big move, basically, after 10 years of kind of seeing the same kind of setup? Which I feel yeah, like I mean, we definitely credit for. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we we saw, you know, hands tracking is getting good. You know, it it was not not so good yeah. <laughs> over the last several years, and it's actually getting really solid, right? Um, I, I'm kind of curious how how that's going to work because I feel like input is something that's been dialed in over the last, you know, thirty years of gaming. You know, and and I think that. Uh, you know, what that uh, end device looks like, you know, I don't know if it's going to be hands only because I worry about things like um, haptics and other types of feedback that you really just can't get with um, simply by using your hands and, you know, kind of in a hands-free type of environment. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in how this type of stuff shakes out. But, you know, the majority of games that we see today are entirely, you know, focused on controllers still um, because they still provide that tactile feedback for the end users that are inside the headset. And we do see some hands first games and content, but um, reality is, is that they're not trying to achieve immersion on those other fronts. So I think that, uh, you know, the results are yet to be seen on, you know, uh, how input's going to shake out in the space. So we definitely have seen over the years, like additional accessories, right? There are mm -hmm. technology outside of the, dis the, the amount of displays that 
I've seen track suits with fingertip vibration haptics and like people wearing backpacks. We've seen the treadmill, <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's definitely for the hardcore audience and it's definitely a harder sell to the, the regular consumers. And then seeing kind of like a simplified version of that is kind of refreshing. But like you said, like, is this enough of a, are we prepared for that? Like the same way that the smartphone kind of made away with buttons. Yeah. I mean, adding peripherals to the equation, I think is probably the end game. And I think that we all saw that in Ready Player One in terms of how Wade interacted with his metaverse. Um, you know, and I think that that's, you know, a potential outcome of all of this is that folks that want to have a deeper level of immersion are able to buy these optional accessories to take them one step further into their overall experience. Um, I don't see it as probably the default methodology in terms of how people are going to uh, interact in this content, but I do see it as a an option or opportunity for people to take it one step deeper, if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, there's a Reddit player one that gets referenced a lot. I mean, there's <laughs> it's like a doom and gloom version of virtual reality, even though like the, the first half of the movie is awesome to kind of look at. The last few years, like XR, the the term XR is kind of like uh, kind of combining AR and VR, right? And AR seems to be kind of finally taking center stage, right? With mm -hmm. technology kind of building up. Can you kind of expand on what the impact of AR? will help kind of push this movement towards everybody. Yeah. I mean, good augmented mixed reality is hard. And that's why we haven't seen it uh, accelerate as quickly as, you know, some of the things that are happening in VR. Um, with the VR form factor, you obviously have a lot more um, space for the compute, the, you know, uh, battery the you know all sorts of things that you need to do and you also have the cycles you know um from you know cpu or gpu perspective um to do the work you need to do to get to the rendering that you know kind of consumers are going to expect so i feel like vr you know while it's not a uh um, easy problem to solve. It's an easier form form factor to solve on. And so I think that, you know, we've started to see high quality augmented mixed reality make its way into the VR headsets because that's the easiest um, overall path to uh, take us um, to, you know, perhaps that end state, which maybe is just just eyeglasses. And so what we started to see in go to markets in both with the MetaQuest Pro um, and the the um, Apple Vision Pro um, is this concept of spectrum, right? So being able to be on a spectrum from virtual reality all the way through to augmented reality. And I think that that's going to be a path, the path forward on a lot of these larger, you know, um, uh, you know, full size devices. Um, but I think the end state for a lot of folks is still, you know, that that concept of being able to have eyeglasses that give you superpowers. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still waiting for the day for sure. Like, I think the Quest 2, you know, there's 20 million of those out there. It's by far the most successful, the most mobile, right, versions mm -hmm. of all the devices. I have yet to really go to a Barnes and Noble or like a Starbucks to see someone really put it on and just be <laughs> spacing out. <laughs> uh, I mean, I wonder if it is just because of the, you know, how heavy it is or how dorky it looks, right? Where it does when it reduced to like glasses that people are finally going to feel convenient and confident yeah. enough. And you know, like even with Apple Vision, it being super slick, full on metal on metal, polished looks awesome i'm curious mm -hmm. to see that is that enough for people to kind of be okay it's, walk, it's, walk out with? yeah i mean it seems like a very private device that you would use at home you know is, is kind of my uh you know kind of read on all this i mean you know wh why to go to a public space and close yourself out to the world using a headset like that and i think that you know as path pass through gets more mature that you know, those types of use cases could be more prevalent. But again, I think it's going to be more the prosumers that are going to drive uh, those types of use cases where they're interested in kind of like having that mixed reality, uh, you know, view into the view into the world in a public location. I've definitely seen headsets on planes before, which is planes honestly kind of. Yeah, but it's also kind of bizarre when you see somebody put it on there and they're <laughs> doing this sort of thing and sitting inside their seat. I'm like, listen. <laughs> 
Listen, you got a very finite amount of space inside yeah. your airline chair. Make sure you keep your controllers in that space too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I think we're, we're, we're Apple Vision is definitely closer than Meta in, in 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 that regard. It just looks like a very luxurious device to kind of be sporting around with that price tag. You kind of want to show it off a bit, right? And that is a barrier that I feel that needs to keep kind of be broken down for, for wider, wider adoption. As soon as you are able to shamelessly display yourself with a device like that, then people are like, what is that? And be curious about it. But yeah, there, in, in terms of like software and, 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 and basically lifestyle apps that just improve your everyday commute or whatever right um i think we're closer there I, I think there's a lot of developers that are able to kind of create those type of things now all right um just waiting for that killer app to make it very seducing to 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 do that and not everybody is just by default uh going out of their way to kind of show that off just yet i mean yeah. how far do you think really after apple vision comes out next year how far do you think we are from in terms of what you're seeing, you know, interacting with your customers and in terms of what you're seeing in the horizon, how, how far are we from going somewhere and seeing someone at a Starbucks uh, more and more, basically? Yeah, I think I think we're a few iterations away from getting to a point where we start seeing ubiquitous public use like that. I think that, you know, the form factor, battery life, the applications themselves need to be able to facilitate and draw value in those types of environments. Um, I think that in terms of just broad ubiquitous use, we're really talking about, you know, kind of an I-classes level form factor that is full pass through, um, but gives you some sort of enrichment in your day, everyday life. I think that that's kind of the more broader use. I mean, I don't see people hauling their PlayStation 5 around and being like, hey, man, I've got a I've got a console and you don't. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do think it is something that we're starting to see better consumer critical mass on, uh, especially with MetaQuest and MetaQuest 2. The MetaQuest 3, I'm pretty excited about as well, just in terms of its ability for for mass adoption. And like I said, I think that, you know, while Apple has released a prosumer super high-end device uh, that I don't think is going to draw huge amounts of units, uh, especially in kind of the consumer market, it does kind of lay the playing field on like, this is the level of quality that we have determined is the most important thing um, for, for immersive technology. And now we're going to work our way down to something that's more accessible, uh, less cost, you know, better form factor that is going to get, you know, better and more widely adopted. There's always a chicken and egg problem with content as well, which is, um, you know, is the market there to invest? And if it is, then, you know, is, you know, does the headset provide the capability that you need to be competitive with uh, with an application. I would love to kind of hear your thoughts about the the Google Glass. Like, how much was that fault with Google with that, or was it just not ready? I mean, it was ahead of its time. And from did, you, did you ever use? Did, did you ever use one? I haven't used one. Okay, so I mean, very basic, right? We're talking about basic projection into one eye, right? So you know, projects on the glass. Um, you know, I think it was ahead of its time. Uh, you know, we saw enterprise use of that technology. So we saw, you know, work instructions type use cases were really solid in that particular case. So, you know, giving some workers some superpowers on the ability to complete a, uh, you know, a, a heads up process that would require a lot of heads down, yeah. you know, following of instructions. Uh, so I think that that, you know, kind of lit the fuse in terms of excitement around wearables and like what the ultimate vision could be. Uh, but obviously it was way ahead of its time and, you know, a, a basic capability that did not have um, follow through in terms of uh, iteration uh, of, you know, what it would take to take that to the next level. So um, I think they did a good job at laying kind of the, the groundwork for us all, but um, re reality is that they didn't follow through with the, the future vision state there. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, at that time, there was a, definitely a lot of interest in marketing. Form factor seemed like it was there. It seemed very kind of Star Trek, cool enough, geeky enough, but like generally accepted, right? Yeah. Uh, 
no no spatial awareness though right no no didn't you know intelligence and com- no computer vision you know like it really didn't know what was going on so you could prompt it to start a very fixed process but beyond that not much more yeah yeah i think uh so the last two years i mean i'm sure covid up to that moment there was like a huge vr surge even location um what do you call it location location-based entertainment yeah based entertainment was an uprise COVID kind of killed all that right i feel like there is still some kind of like resurgence back you know, i'm seeing all these kind of outdoor malls having vr arcades that are constantly filled up now uh which is awesome to kind of see and then now apple vision kind of announced i would love to kind of hear your perspective like what kind of boost that gave to that industry uh and was it mostly consumer side or are you seeing at least on the prosumer and the clients that you're working with like, Hey, we need to kind of get on this. Uh, it's, it's the thing that we've been waiting for. Type of. Yeah. So on the enterprise side, we definitely saw like a huge push of, you know, enterprises trying to figure out problems. Right. So they had workers distributed suddenly they had no way to train. They're trying to maintain their business and, you know, VR is a good way to, um, transport users into you know difficult to train scenarios and i think that we saw a huge influx of new organizations looking to immersive technology to solve business problems and i think that that really helped kind of move the industry forward through the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, While Cognitive didn't see a ton of business in the earliest stages of that, we started to see a lot of new prototypes, new POCs, new pilots make its way all the way down the funnel. And now we're starting to see even post-COVID that, you know, value has been recognized and, you know, how do we deploy this, you know, to our business and and leverage it for uh, cost savings, efficiency, safety, you, you name it. Um, same thing applies kind of on the consumer side as well. I mean, we saw a huge, you know, influx of new headsets being, you know, uh, shipped into the market. Uh, lots of folks looking for opportunities to transport themselves outside the home. And I think that VR did a good job at, at doing that. And it also helped drive, uh, you know, another wave of excitement and uh, recommitment from the developers that were in this particular category uh, around continuing to invest in this particular category. Um, it, it's it's tough as a developer and I, you know, I, I, I'm not a game developer, so kudos to the ones that stuck it out all the way through. But, you know, if you started back in 2014, 2015, 2016, um, it's been a long run to find, you know, a, a reasonable market that you can address with your capability and your skill set. And so now we're starting to see an addressable audience that is hungry and has an appetite for high quality content. And I think that, uh, you know, moving forward, things like the new Apple device are, are important to keep the uh, feet to the fire, as it were. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, excitement that on the is is on the horizon. I, I feel like there is there's a lot of cool things about Apple, at least from the game developer side, but also like just any app developer out there. Because I I kind of crap on Google because Google is kind of known for like picking up things and throwing it away as soon as you kind of. I wish I would. I wish they did more. You know, I I, I yeah. thought that kind of like the Google Cardboard was. I don't want to say a mistake because maybe it like lit the fuse for folks to understand the space a little bit better. But I mean, it was such a low quality, you know, type of experience that, you know, you got to the end of like 2016 and, you know, folks were saying that they have tried VR when the reality is, is that they tried on a $5 piece of cardboard with the most basic experience you could possibly imagine and assume that that was what was you know what it what it meant to to use virtual reality so i think that you know you kind of be battling that for the last five years to reconvince consumers that this is a you know uh, an exciting product category the capabilities are evolved and that it's worth another try yeah i mean they they just constantly have 
they do have good ideas. Whatever incubator program they have to kind of service, you know, their employees to kind of come up and, and try things is great. But no follow through. <laughs> it's just, just like it's either Google Maps or it's nothing. So it's a very hard kind of like to do business there uh, com compared comparing to these billion dollar mega printing machines that yeah. they have, right? It'd probably so, be hard to work there too, right? Like it would definitely. be like, you know, it's you're working in the organization, you're working on innovation and your product gets killed when you feel like you're just getting started, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So the cool thing about Apple is that they are a little more tr of a trusted brand. They kind of stick with mm -hmm. things uh, mm -hmm. and, and then create uh, basically its own industry. So, you know, the, to me as Elisa, as a developer, it, it sounds more enticing, more guaranteed that if I develop something for the Apple product, that, you know, there's a chance that it can exist and stay there. Right. Yeah. And so by that alone, there's going to be, I feel a period of just a lot of apps catching up to, and then that, that eventually by tries of a thousand times or 10,000 times, it's going to reach that killer app faster than what the meta platform is currently offering. Um, at least that's on the game side. Uh, I would love to kind of hear like, well, what do you see with the Apple vision that your prosumers, your clientele are, are more excited about of, of doing that is not currently able to do on the current devices out there? What did they see? Yeah. You know, from the demo that was like, ah, oh, finally, you know, yeah, I, I mean, so from my perspective, you know, building on immersive technology, the stakes are a lot higher as a developer to build super high quality content that creates, um, you know, comfort, comfortable experience, uh, creates a level of immersion that draws the user into the experience that they would want to stay uh, and that they would want to come back. And third, delivers on good application performance. It's not going to drive the battery to the ground or make you hot inside the headset. And I think that the, you know, I can't point to many mobile applications on, on my iPhone where I've had a situation um, where I've opened a crappy application and it's and it's made me sick. You know, the majority of folks will just kind of move that into the trash and, and they're done with it. One of the things we've recognized in the in the space is that um, bad quality applications create systemic risk, not just for the application developer, so the person building the game or, or experience that the user might churn out and, and not come back, but you can also create platform churn as well, right? So, you know, headset goes back in the box, headset goes back to the store, right? So there's a real risk here just in terms of um, what the platforms need to achieve in quality um, to be able to ensure that, you know, it, consumers have a, a good quality first experience, second experience, third experience, and so on, um, so that they stay on the platform and stay committed to, to their usage of the content. Um, and I think that's why you've seen, you know, things like, um, you know, the App Lab, you know, on, on the meta ecosystem where, you know, it's more of a proving ground for applications. You know, folks are given a warning before they enter into that space that, you know, this is content in its earliest stages. And um, yeah, for me, what was exciting about the Apple device is that they have driven up the quality expectation for what a headset is going to look like for the for the OEMs. And I think that that falls in line with what my understanding of how people interact with this content and the potential risk that the content uh, can bring to the platform um, if low quality experiences are achieved. So I'm kind of curious how this stuff will evolve moving forward. And I, I can speak a little bit more to quality as well, because that's something that we spend a lot of time in, specifically with consumer apps. Right, right, right. Uh, like the, in, in, I would say since the beginning of the year, right? I, I feel like the industry that has been the most impacted and there's plenty of, you know, perspective on this, the most impacted by AI tech, you know, being the kind of the buzzword for this year, right? Uh, <laughs> it's the, the educational sector, right? And, you know, VR mm -hmm. seems to be a very obvious choice to engage students or yeah. training simulation, right? It just seems very clear uh, with, with, with attention basically, or basically the, the, 
the the danger of curiosity right is happening right now of like, mm-hmm. why should i try to find the answer when i can get the answer at any second yeah. you know what's the reasoning for reasoning anymore right yeah. uh i would love to but you're not acquiring your- <laughs> but you're not acquiring knowledge right like yeah, you know yeah. if you if you ask a robot and say hey like give me this particular knowledge that's not the best way to learn right and i right. think that that's the the reality of this stuff is that you know uh, not, not just in training and simulation but you're right in the learning category in general learning by doing is a great way to acquire knowledge right and being able to understand quantify what's going on take the action yourself and then get reps on that as well so yes. being able to come back and and you know try again and 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 uh and demonstrate your skills you know within within the immersive technology space and so we've seen a huge influx of educational based content that is designed and its capabilities are focused on creating a immersive comfortable experience that uh students and and other folks that are just interested in knowledge can jump into uh and and gain perspective uh by learning by doing so i think that that's you know a, a huge use case um and uh, you know while ai can speak to us and give us knowledge on demand uh, i don't think it's uh, you know an effective way to uh help us retain that knowledge and, and uh, build our skills as humans yeah with smartphones, you know smartphones of anything with information at the finger you know at the edge of our fingertips i i, I would say this generation is that that much smarter than you know we were 20 years ago <laughs> uh, so I would like kind of kind of dig a little deeper into this, you know, with XR. I, I truly think XR uh, is going to be the answer to this uh, decline of education right now. Uh, you know, with lesser teachers and even lesser quality teachers, and uh, being available and XR having that ability to kind of transport any quality teacher anywhere all at once and not lose you know, the interaction that, you know, people will miss inside a classroom. I mean, it's slowly moving that way with Zoom kind of dominating the space. Yeah. And people hate Zoom, right? So uh, I would love to kind of hear how you've been seeing XR kind of in the evolution of education in the past few years and what you're seeing in the next five years, five to 10 years. Yeah, well, At for least sure. America I, being kind of like <laughs> the back yeah. of our conversation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that XR can help scale education, right? And I think you mentioned it just a second ago. Like it, it gives an opportunity to bring expert knowledge into any classroom, um, and and build in a, in a you know the ability to acquire that knowledge in a really effective way. Um, it brings scalability in the delivery of content as well. Um, so instead of having a, a teacher you know, recite knowledge to 20 to 30 students at a time, um, providing an effective module that provides expert level, um, you know, learning capabilities, be it, you know, a lecture or learning by doing um, through these, these, uh, these content and and, uh, content experiences. I think that the biggest challenge that I see in this space right now is that it's still hard to build this stuff, right? So we think about our educators, um, not necessarily every educator is a technology whiz in terms of their ability to create content or jump into unity, um, and then start building, Um, you know, maybe that's, the model in the future but you know creating an educational model um you know often takes money and time and designers and developers and the rest of the game development workflow um to make high quality content and i think we've seen a lot of educators bridge that with like 180 and 360 video which you know is good you know it definitely puts the user or the the end user um maybe the student uh into uh the environment and and maybe uh gives a better example of what we're trying to portray and, and what we're trying to get you know understood um but you still have a a student inside a headset in a very passive experience that they need to pay attention to um learning by doing you know you're putting the 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 student in the driver's seat and asking them to complete a task or asking them to 
drive, you know, as, as a, you know, with, within the particular experience. And I think it creates a, a higher level of engagement and, and overall consumption of that knowledge and, and ultimately re- retention of that knowledge as well. So I think that those are all kind of, um, you know, important aspects is that, you know, if we agree that the immersive base experiences that offer six degrees, degrees of freedom allow the user to engage as opposed to just watch um, are the best forms of content, how do we uh, make that scalable for our educators and subject matter experts to build content in those categories, right? And I think that that's kind of a, an outstanding challenge. Yeah, it, it will require an incredible amount of investment, right, in time and in finance to kind of move maybe tools, maybe tools yeah. as well. Like um, personally, you know, I have a twelve-year-old son because of COVID switched, like everybody switched to more online. And then when people or when students were able to go back to physical spaces, you know, we kind of kept them in kind of like this virtual school and have been, Mm -hmm. you know, just seeing the differences, you know, and um, reminding him when he went back to summer school to kind of interact with people again. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's 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 good. Get back to your interpersonal (laughs) and your social skills. Right. But he was immediately reminded of what it was like to be in a classroom and learn basically according to the lowest denominator, right? Just learning at that speed. And I feel like, you know, the virtual school is a step towards, at least for him in the right direction of getting that time back, the the amount of time he spends learning versus being able to kind of manage the rest of his day is extraordinary right we're talking about the yeah. difference of eight hours to two three hours right of, exactly of school yeah right xr to me is just further realizing the potential of that for for every student on a personal level to kind of get that attention right um that these classrooms are just ballooning because of the lack of teachers yeah in some cases i, I see grades kind of being merged together you know <laughs> like yeah, like for sure. Are together now. It's like, when did that? I don't remember that ever. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, it makes sense to us. It's like, all right. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, because of the lack of stuff. And it is to me a real, a parent, as a parent, like a, an immediate feedback that I've been seeing with the school system is just like, yeah, it's being more and more deprioritized. Yeah. Um, I've got a, I've got an 11 year old and an eight year old, and we've, we both, my wife and I, you know, recognized, you know, kind of a similar situation. So we, we homeschooled the kids for yeah. a couple of years during COVID. And yeah, I mean, material delivery, it was a couple hours a day, you know, and, and yeah. that was because my wife is spending the time and, you know, de- delivering custom curriculum to the kids and making sure that they get exactly what they need to do. And and then we move on with our day and, you know, return that time. I think it's really um, interesting about this concept of, you know, maybe we can get to a place where XR delivers you know, highly customized and, you know, tailored experiences that meet your level of understanding of the content and gradually increase in complexity over time. And I'm kind of curious, you know, like, let's just say 10, 15 years from now, like, what is school, you know, gonna, gonna look like? And, you know, is there an opportunity for um, folks to learn in a much more personal um, level uh, by leveraging technology like this. So I think you make a good point there because we we saw the we saw the same thing. Like our kids are able to consume content really really quickly. So then it's like okay, well let's keep going. Let's see how fast we can finish this grade. Yeah, it's it's, it's a space yeah. that, that that you know I feel there's there's a lot of um, opportunity there, and unfortunately, not a lot of attention is given. I mean, obviously there are like dedicated educators that are moving in that space but i mean this can like you are seeing transcend beyond just k to 12 right you're seeing on a professional level that it's just easier to kind of train someone by doing things you know doing simulating you know medical procedures we have a lot of friends i'm sure that you know that are in this field that are training surgeons yeah. i mean these are game designers who are having to learn 
medical terms so that they can make yeah. the game for the surgeons to be qualified to do surgery. I have seen I have seen some gross Unity assets. I'll just <laughs> yeah. uh, say that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's gnarly. Yeah, but that, yeah, yeah. It, it, it is right, and it's kind of funny because you know the best part about that though is that you create a standard playing field of learning, right? So right. you know you can get expert feedback from a wide range of doctors on how a procedure is supposed to be done. You build that procedure as the best practice. And now you can run surgeons through that. You know, there's there's obviously, you know, a benefits for practicum and getting in the hospital and, you know, uh, doing the surgeries and, you know, all those types of things as well. But the reality is, is that you've already been in the operating room 100 times by the time you get there because you've been experiencing this stuff as opposed to reading it and watching videos. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is not like new, new, but I was seeing like. um remote surgery being done right the, the yeah. uh, you know the doctor being in a different location and then basically phoning it in <laughs> with the yeah the you saw the the suturing the suturing of the banana over yeah 5G. the, the, the banana thing oh, yeah. like, yo this just feels like a video game at this point you know <laughs> but like we're seeing like that type of interaction and xr just fits so nicely into that where you can ultimately be in the room by not being in the room um i don't know if zoom is going to be the first one to figure out hey man we gotta up the quarterly profits this is the next move because they dominate (laughs) this space i mean i've had friends that were in the same building uh and they would zoom in the doctor for the you know analysis and the doctor was just up in the second floor like Mm -hmm. they're using in those kind of use case scenarios you you know by Mm -hmm. proximity they're super there they're there physically there but you know it's just too much to kind of go down the stairs i guess uh, so, yeah. like, the, I mean, the the there there are there is a need of just remotely being there, and XR mm-hmm. just fits nicely, and you know, as an industry to kind of like serve these needs in the best way possible. Um, yeah, I would love to kind of hear, like, you know, with your experience, because the, the thing with VR, especially, was only slightly above a decade, right? Maybe fifteen years at most. <laughs> AR, you know, there was some experimentation with the iPhone, I feel like was leading the way mostly with AR. We heard some stuff from HoloLens for a little while and then Magic Lens, you know, these type of devices that kind of disappeared, right? And then finally, Apple Vision is like, hey, let's do AR, right? And to me, it's like the best version of like, uh, of that technology. But at the same time, um, Talking to to people on the podcast, a lot of people have said this is the natural transitional technology that is going to have people embrace VR because VR is kind of, you know, uh, kind of makes people apprehensive at first, and AR just you know blends things nicely. Um, yeah, I mean, Apple's been training its audience for years on. Um, how to interact with 3D models and to have, you know, kind of a, a 3D based, you know, kind of um, interaction with their environment. And we've kind of seen it on the iPhone too. I mean, if you think about like the the face scanning that they do for unlocking phones, you've got eye tracking on the, on the front of the, on the front of the phone as well to kind of uh, add interactions. You've seen, you know, embodiment of, of, of humans now, you know, kind of representing themselves in avatars through yeah. iMessage and, you know, other types of apps. So, the playing field and the the chessboard has been set for a while in terms of building what they felt were the fundamental technologies. And so back in, I think, 17 is when we started seeing like AR kit, AR core, you know, start to hit the market. And that really kind of led to an entire slew of developers thinking about how they could use the camera and the screen as a, as a password opportunity to teach folks about augmenting the world right and so that's really kind of the the fundamental like initial you know kind of implication and then step further you saw you know snapchat really embrace this uh you see it on instagram and and pretty much everywhere now where you've you've got that pass-through lens and how do i augment my world and there's you know lots of folks building filters and other types of things to to do that and so for me this is all again you know kind of groundwork technology that gets us to an end state that is you know a comfortable form factor that can lead into everyday life 
And, you know, like we discussed before, like optics are hard, right? Making a high quality experience that you want to interact with is also hard. And so, you know, you mentioned HoloLens, you know, HoloLens 1, HoloLens 2. These are expensive devices in the 3000 plus range. These have the ability to augment, but optics is a problem, you know, in terms of field and field of view and, and, you know, kind of what you can deliver on that particular device from a fidelity perspective as well. And you get even into contrast and lighting in those types of environments, you know, like you can go ahead and try to deliver a hologram inside of a HoloLens. But if you've got, you know, lots of light in the room, you know, it might get washed out. So there's all sorts of problems that need to be kind of solved for this stuff to work out in a much more ubiquitous way. The benefit of what we see with MetaQuest Pro Quest 3 and uh, the Apple Vision is that um, they're going VR, you know, kind of a VR form factor first because they can control the environment, right? They can close off the user's field of view. They can offer high quality 2020 optics inside the headset that, you know, give them the capabilities to replicate the world as opposed to try to pass through the world. And I think that that's been kind of the, the, the key driver here on delivering higher fidelity augmented reality experiences on day one um, that would be impossible to do at, you know, today's, you know, current optics and, and capability level on augmented or mixed reality basis. So um, I think that, that, you know, long story short, I think that this new headset, these new capabilities, just another set of laying the groundwork for that end game. Yeah. The, the one thing with the, apple demo that was kind of depressing was the the moment when the dad had it on and watching the kids grow up in front of his eyes and the kids are like why why dad why are you not looking at me and then they, they show like like the fisheye scuba which must be freaky right as a kid it's like, yeah what's going on it's like digital eyes um you know we know the smartphone there's enough data now we have you know, the most available technology in, in terms of social media. But in, in a lot of ways, these things have been kind of isolating, right? And we talked briefly about having these these devices in, in social settings is can be very isolating. You're, you're basically shutting out the world in a way, right? Um, but there are obviously Sorry, lost... advantages. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I lost audio for a second. Oh, no, keep going. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we we discuss advantages, right? With uh, you know, the stuff that we're talking about when uh, it it can enhance social interaction, especially with those that physically you can't be around. Uh, I yeah. would love to kind of hear more of your thoughts about that, with how the XR industry can improve these things that at least previous technology are, are kind of kind of pushing us in one direction. Like yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think that the technology can definitely be a connector as opposed to something that pushes people away. I, you know, I don't see it as, you know, something that is going to make you closer to your kids in the living room, you know, but I think yeah. that like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, Oh man, I don't know if I want to put like, yeah. Every time I put the headset on, it's more of a personal, you know, it's dad yeah. time, uh, you know, to, to go and, and be somewhere else. But, um, you know, the reality is, is that this technology can definitely draw people closer and, you know, there's a lot of collaborative type of experiences and, you know, it can make the world a lot smaller for sure. Um, not just from like a, like a consumer perspective of like, you know, be closer to your loved ones, you know, or, or, you know, close the gap on long distance relationships, but even change the way that we work as well. So I've seen a lot of like collaboration and things going on on a, on a work basis as well. Yeah. I think not enough credit is given to, to Apple with this FaceTime, you mm -hmm. know, at that point, I think at the beginning, not a lot of people wanted to do FaceTime, right? People were avoiding it the same way that people don't do phone calls anymore, but text first. It's like, well, why are you calling me? <laughs> You're being weird, right? But FaceTime is actually more prevalent now. And it's more like, a, yeah. I think a lot of people FaceTime more than just a regular phone call. They, they nailed it on the brand for sure, you know, and that's, yeah. you know, when uh, the grand grandparents want to talk to the kids and stuff like that, FaceTime first, because, you know, phone call is, is one thing, but being able to see and, and interact is another. So I think that that's kind of interesting. And I'm kind of cu curious how that's going to evolve as this technology becomes more, more prevalent and folks that are 
outside the pro category uh, start to use it as well on, you know, kind of a, a day-to-day basis and even use cases like that one. Yeah, I think Apple will, will usher in the next evolution of that first before everybody else. Uh, I mean, the, the fact a lot of people are saying uncanny valley with the way you can scan your face and you can see their digital avatar. You like, I mean, obviously you're going to want someone to stand in your living room and talk to you, but I'm curious to see how they're going to advance basically FaceTime too, uh, um, as a way to help people connect collaboratively for work or, or just personally. Yeah. I, I mean, the whole face, you know, representation in the headset, I mean, there's a value proposition to it, you know, yeah. being able to see like, okay, pass through is on and I can look at you, you know, yeah. and, and, and it's neat. It's, right? it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a neat feature. They obviously spent a lot of money on it and a lot of time like to make that work. Yeah. And uh, I think that it, it, uh, you know, I haven't used it personally yet. So I'm kind of curious how that might change my interaction with the headset. Maybe I will put it on a little bit more, you know, if I'm in an augmented reality type of experience. But, you know, I've got a MetaQuest Pro on my desk and, you know, I I don't have that capability. So I usually put it on when folks aren't around. Yeah. 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 I think it only helps. I mean, with that, with them having that design in mind and understanding that, yes, it can be isolating and we're going to try to bridge the gap. It's it's the first effort, I feel, from a major headset company to to put that as part of the design so to me that's very hopeful at the very yeah. least uh and I'm, I'm curious to see what they do with it because you know it, it seems like digitally they're maybe people can watch movies off your goggles i don't know <laughs> like yeah. it's basically a display that's how yeah we'll have to see how it goes yeah they have to jailbreak the headset so you can use the <laughs> yeah. other screen yeah <laughs> Well, uh, well, man, that that's uh, about an hour. I want to thank yeah. you for for coming on. Hopefully, it was painless. Uh, this yeah. is the part where I actually hand the mic over to you and shut up, so that you can talk directly to our listeners and viewers out there about how to find you, how to talk to you, how to connect with you. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate the opportunity. So, um, you know, Cognitive 3D, we focus on analytics for virtual augmented mixed reality. Talked a little bit in the pod, a little bit about this concept of of quality. And so quality is a, a really important topic for developers, especially in this particular category. The stakes are really high. Um, it's hard for a developer to know how they stand and how they rank among their peers in terms of creating quality and quality experiences. And so one of the things that Cognitive's went about here to solve this problem is we've created a dashboard as well as a number of metrics called cognitive comfort, uh, cognitive immersion, and cognitive app performance. And each of these are focused on... you know, providing effectively a barometer for you as a developer to understand, you know, where you stand uh, on each of these scores within your application, but also how you stand among your peers, uh, what the expectations are. And so this tool automatically looks at like comfort, for example, we look at ergonomics, we look at posture, we look at, you know, kind of uh, unergonomic, you know, controller movement and engagement. And uh, we give you insight to where these things are a problem. So you can optimize as a developer where you're going to spend time um, and uh, what you need to optimize within your application. Uh, we just moved into closed beta. If you're interested in checking it out, it's uh, cognitive3d.com, free to sign up, free to use. Um, and uh, we're hopeful that um, this helps our, our industry build higher quality experiences, um, but also provide insight to developers to understand and kind of quantify uh, what makes high quality experiences and where they could invest their time and, and build better content. Um, that's pretty much it. All right, Tony, man, it was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, it's obvious as a space that we're focusing on this year with, you know, Apple vision kind of coming out. It, it's a little, you know, any new tech for game developers to play with and, and basically exploit. <laughs> we're always going to be there, you know, front lines. So we're super excited and, you know, super happy to kind of have you on to kind of talk more and give more insight. The enterprise space, especially, is something that, mm-hmm. you know, game developers, I always talk to because we're using the same tech. And in a lot of cases, they need kind of like our knowledge over there to kind of help actually do things that absolutely yeah yeah so uh it was great to kind of uh hear more about that so thanks tony appreciate Uh, it for everybody else see you guys next week 
Hello, everybody. Brandon here. I want to talk to you today about something very special. We've been on this wild ride together, haven't we? From my early days as a senior employee, feeling a bit lost, all the way to leading multiple studios, transitioning to smaller indie teens and to the mobile industry, and now running my own game studio for the last six years. Throughout this time, you've been here listening and learning along with me, sharing this never-ending journey of discovery. This year, I'm kind of on this quest of meeting serial studio founders, discussing acquisitions, or exploring what it takes to grow a studio to over 100 developers. I've always tried to find an exciting topic to delve into, and every year is a little different. The focus is a little different because that's where I am in my career currently, and I want to be able to share what I'm learning with you guys. So I've always been dedicated to asking the tough questions, bringing you insightful answers from industry leaders and experts. And now I want to share with you how I'm applying these answers to my own journey. This is why I'm excited to announce that for just $1.99 per month, you can now subscribe to our exclusive content series. These bonus episodes will give you a deeper look into my personal experiences and how I'm putting into practice what our esteemed guests are preaching. It's more of a personal side of the journey that I hope will show you that we're all in this together and we're all continuously learning. Whether you're a game developer, studio founder, or just a passionate gamer, there's something in it for everyone. By subscribing, not only will you gain access to this exclusive content, but you'll also be supporting the ongoing production of the regular programming. It helps keeps the lights on and ensures that I can continue bringing you top quality content and insight into the world of game development. The links to subscribe are in the description. Your support means the world to me and helps me keep doing what I love sharing this journey with you. So show some love, hit that subscribe button, and let's continue this adventure together. Thank you all for your continued support. And as always, stay tuned for more exciting content. Until next time, this is Brandon, signing off.